word. Um, John 7, 1 through 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one who works in secret, if he seeks to no one who no one works in secret, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, "My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil." You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, He is leading the people astray, and yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. This is God's word. Uh, Brothers and sisters in Christ, out of every passage that we've read thus far in the Gospel of John, there is a certain sense that this passage resonates with us more on an interpersonal or even an intrapersonal level, particularly that last verse, verse 13 should really resonate with us as uniquely applicable. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of Jesus. We live in a society that, for various reasons, has grown something of a resilience of speaking about Jesus publicly and honoring Jesus publicly, even though I believe actually there is a sense of to me, there is evidence of a religious resurgence in our land, and not just speaking about what uh, is referred to as the Asbury Revival, if you haven't heard about it, uh, what is it, this past week or something like, uh, like that, not speaking directly about that, but more peripheral, circumstantial uh, things around that. I believe that there is somewhat of a religious resurgence uh, in our land. Uh, but at least for this day, there still remains an aversion of publicly speaking about Jesus, publicly honoring the biblical Jesus, not the sissified uh, Jesus um, that is culturally appropriated from our culture, uh, not that version of Jesus as he's fabricated by the media, uh, but the Jesus as he's revealed in the Bible, right? There's, uh, there, there's still a, 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 a hesitance to honor publicly the things of Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures. And this could be for a, a ton of reasons, for myriads of reasons. Uh, maybe because it's true that, yes, the people of this world, they just love their sin and they just simply don't want to be uh, told to live a holy life. That is certainly, uh, uh, the, that's on the table, Maybe because they know that honoring Jesus is going to come at some personal cost. Uh, That's why they don't want to honor and um, publicly uh, avow Jesus for themselves. Or maybe, and we shouldn't devalue this one, maybe it's the case that uh, the people of the world equate Christians with hypocrites. And they don't want anything to do with Jesus because they don't want anything to do with hypocrites, because at times 
Christians can live a hypocritical life. Uh, But however valid these reasons are, however invalid they are, the Bible says that people here don't speak openly of Jesus, quote, for fear of the Jews. We come on the heels of chapter 6, the previous chapter, where about six months earlier, that's the timeline in the Gospel of John, um, the things in chapter 6 happened around six months earlier, where the crowd that had eaten the bread largely abandoned Jesus. And we've been given a prompting even that there's someone within Jesus' personal entourage, a number of the twelve itself, who is going to betray him. And so we see a, a little bit more of that theme here, that disbelief is something that comes even to, into Jesus' earthly family as well and into the community of the religious elite. And it creates a big question mark um, to the people as to um, how to interpret Jesus. In other words, the disbelief of a select few, the disbelief of a select group now causes the masses to wonder what they should be thinking about Jesus in the first place. Some people don't like him. Some people do. And even the people who we know who don't like him are now of Jesus' earthly family. And so we'll be looking at this passage with this theme in mind that's given in your bulletin. Jesus' private attendance at the feast makes us consider his placement in the world and how people respond to him and how we can be bold in living for him. And we'll note these uh, three points as we go through our passage. The demand of the brothers, the desire of Jesus, and the division of the people. Well, we begin with, uh, the, uh, the de- with the demand of the brothers. Uh, with the demand of the brothers, it starts with um, a couple of noteworthy details regarding the circumstances of Jesus' ministry up to this point. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee which matches, by the way, uh, the other Gospels, what are, called, what are commonly called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It matches these uh, Gospels very nicely. You'll find it in, in Mark chapters 7 through 9, other parallel passages uh, that speak on uh, these matters, the events such as uh, Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman, if you remember that story, uh, the feeding of the 4,000, the transfiguration and the like. The rest of the verse says that he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Uh, Here we get a a recap of what we found in John chapter 5, verse 18, where the Jews in Jerusalem were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because he is equating himself with his father. He's equating himself. He, He makes claims to equality with his father. And so there's a continuation that's present here of their desire then to put him to death. Now, in these days, the people who lived in one province uh, could be protected uh, from the judgment in in, in cases like this uh, from another province because it's a a different jurisdiction. But we see that the Jews, that is the, the, the religious elite, that's the common phrase in the Gospel of John for the religious elite. Whenever John uh, uses that phrase, the Jews, he properly means the religious elite. We see that the Jews know about Jesus, and by and large, they're against him. By and large, they're against him. And they have something of a, of a powerful influence upon uh, people's opinion. They have powerful influence upon public and popular opinion regarding Jesus. We also read in verse 2, 
that the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand, which is a detail, by the way, that we're going to be coming back to in uh, subsequent sermons. But we get something of the surrounding circumstances of his ministry thus far. And now for the demand itself. You'll see that it's given by Jesus' brothers. Uh, That's what the text says. Jesus' brothers and sisters uh, are mentioned by name in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. So this puts to rest the idea that some have about what's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, But they demand, they make a demand of Jesus uh, that's right here in verses uh, 3 and following. And there's a few things that can be said about uh, this demand, that, 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 uh, about what they say, that helps us understand the meaning of, of the passage. Think about this uh, with me. Take a look at verse 3. Firstly, that their demand has bad intel. Their demand has bad intel. You'll notice that when Jesus' brothers say, verse 3, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. There's an implication here as though Jesus' disciples didn't see what he was doing up to this, uh, this point, and that's just wrong. As a matter of fact, John 4 verse 45 says that Jesus was popular specifically because he did miracles in Jerusalem. So the demand has bad intel. Secondly, their demand has a bad method. Their demand has a bad method. Verse 4, the first part of verse 4 His brothers say, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. In other words, what do they want from Jesus? Uh, They want him to go public. They want him to rely upon a method of popularity uh, to maybe perhaps win back the crowd that he lost in the previous chapter. A ton of his disciples left and, hey, what would uh, win him back? Well, this uh, PR stunt, Uh, maybe this could even influence the... Uh, the, the, the religious elite, right? Maybe this, or at least this could counter their influence upon the public. Man, Jesus, if you can only stand on a pedestal in Jerusalem, which is the heart of all Judaism, and do some miracles, then people would love you. They would see that, uh, that you are who you say you are. Then you'd be popular again. What they really need, Jesus, is a public PR stunt, that's what, uh, what, what they need. That's what you should, uh, should do as a PR stunt. But we know that the ministry of Jesus is not a bunch of PR stunts, right? The ministry of Jesus is all about being your substitute, right? That's what the ministry of Jesus is all about. So the demand has a bad method to it. Thirdly, their demand has a bad end goal in mind. Uh, the brothers say, verses, verse 4, at the end of verse 4, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Uh, They say this because they have the end goal in mind of him being a political figure in the same way that the crowd wanted him to be the political figure in the last chapter. You remember uh, last chapter? They say about him, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Well, the very next time that we see anything like this, uh, this phrase is what the brothers say they want Jesus to be forced to be king back in chapter 6. Now they say, the brothers say, go show yourself to the world. Doubtless with the same intention. Their demand has a bad end goal. And lastly, their demand has a bad motivation. Uh, The next verse exposes their motives. Uh, Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. 
this means that everything that they said doesn't take account of the totality of the ministry of Christ. Whatever they wanted him to do wasn't with a view that he would actually discharge the true intent of his ministry. They think that Jesus is out for popularity. They think that Jesus is out for accolades. They think that Jesus is out for positions of political authority. Doubtless that they can benefit from themselves, right? You know, my brother over here, Jesus, is of a high political stature, and I see to benefit from that as well. They don't see that his ministry is out to lay his life down for sinners. That's what his ministry is about. And there's something about this, brothers and sisters, that we do need to pick up on. The fact that we can assume that we know what's better for Jesus' ministry than Jesus does. Uh, I suppose in our day it's a lot easier to do this than when uh, the church uh, faces open opposition, but ours is a culture where it's easy to assume that we know what's best for the church when what we think is best for the church actually doesn't align to the true intentions of the ministry of Christ to the actual benefit of the church. Uh, so there's a sense in which we need to be conscious of this. Uh, the same thing that, that has happened back, uh, back then happens nowadays, but there's also a sense uh, in which we should be in our own private prayer life for God to raise up leaders, uh, leaders who know the word, uh, leaders who, who love the word, leaders who take their cues from the word uh, to uh, impose biblical ideas about a biblical ministry, about the biblical Jesus, not the Jesus, again, that's fabricated by our culture. So we need to pray for leaders uh, to have the gumption to do this, to be aligned with the ministry of Christ. And so we'd see the demand of the brothers here. And this moves us on to the desire of Jesus, uh, verses 6 through 10, the desire of Jesus. The brothers of Jesus want him to do something. Uh, he responds in verse 6 in a way that kind of sounds rather peculiar to us. Uh, in response to the demand, he says, verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Uh, now, what does this mean? Uh, what does this mean? Uh, some fine interpreters... Uh, think that this has a direct reference to his death. Uh, I don't think it, uh, that's necessarily immediately in view here, and they're fine interpreters who uh, say this. Uh, rather, this is in reference to the fact that he knows what his brothers want to do for him and his ministry. Right? They, they love him and have a wonderful plan for his life. Okay? Uh, he knows what his brothers uh, are, are all about. They, they, he knows what they want him to do. He knows that there's a difference of opinion regarding him. He knows that, uh, that, that he's going to be uh, received with great hostility in Jerusalem. Uh, and he knows that because of this, that he has unique restrictions on his ability to travel there for the feast. The Jews would be expecting him, and so he has to conduct himself accordingly. In other words... His brothers can go to the feast unhindered because they aren't the ones who the Jews are looking to kill. And so they have a certain freedom of travel in an earthly sense that he doesn't necessarily have in the same sense, which is why he isn't going to show himself to the world. Right? So you see this coming together. Um, to uh, state my case this way, Calvin says that the reason why he says what he does here is because he knows that the world is his mortal enemy. 
And so he has restrictions put upon him because of what he says in the very next verse. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Now, there's a couple of things that I would like for us to see, make sure that we see in this uh, verse. Uh, Firstly, when Jesus says that the world cannot hate you, what he's actually referring to is the religious elite again. He's not referring to atheists. He's not referring to the agnostics or anything like that. Now, this isn't to exonerate the atheists or the agnostics for their violation of the first commandment. But it is to point out one very clear thing that you can gather from the implications here. Jesus hates hypocrisy. He hates hypocrisy. That is, if someone professes faith in Christ and yet lives a life that is entirely undistinguishable from the life of the unbeliever, if the person claims the name of Christ, but they have no conviction of sin, they have no hatred for sin, if they have no hatred for the things that God hates, if they have no love for the things that God loves, they are accounted by the Lord Jesus as being part of the world. More than this, the hypocrites are presented here as being openly hostile against Jesus. And so we know now that the works that Jesus speaks of here then are all the feigned Uh, all the artificial, uh, all the shammed appearances of the true faith without having the substance of it. Jesus says here that he who knows all things, he testifies those against those in that system of religiosity, that its works are evil. And secondly, when he says the world cannot hate you, He's saying that the world has a sense of convenience, of self-preservation to it. That is to say that the world is selective about who it's hostile to. Uh, This works very well with the passage at hand. The brothers of Jesus, in other words, have free recourse. They have total freedom to go to Jerusalem with immunity. Why? Because they don't believe. That's why. That's what gives them the right of passage. That's, uh, that's what gives them uh, immunity to, to go and come as they, they please. It shows us something of the natural hostility that the world has to the things of the gospel. And really, it shows us something of the need for the Spirit of God to overcome that hostility. It shows us in story form what James 4 verse 4 says, that friendship with the world is enmity towards God. That is, whoever is involved and complicit in the system of sin will be taken in by the world, but just so long as its sin is not pointed out. The world will tolerate you as long as you don't point out its sin and so long as you can maintain yourself as your own savior. And so Jesus, having all this in mind, doesn't have a desire to go. He has has a desire to stay, at least for now. Verse 8 says, you go up to the feast, which basically means that they are the ones who are to be going up in public, not Jesus. I am not going to the feast. And you'll see a footnote, by the way. You should see a footnote that says, says that some manuscripts say, I am not yet going up to the feast, which I actually think is the right reading of the passage. For my time has not yet fully come. After this, he remained in Galilee. So we see the desire for Jesus to remain where he is during that, uh, that time, for that time being. 
is rather multi-level. It's multi-faceted. On the one hand, he knows what his brothers expect of him. Uh, on, the other, on another hand, he knows of the hatred that the self-righteous world has against him because he testifies against it, that it's sinful. And, and, and on uh, another hand, he desires to stay put because of the discretion that he needs to exercise at this point in his life. And so we move on from here to the division of the people. The division of the people. And we look at verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Uh, In in those days when you have a pilgrimage feast, which uh, essentially mandates that you have to uh, go to Jerusalem, it requires someone to go to Jerusalem, that's what a pilgrimage feast is, uh, you, uh, you have this pilgrimage feast. It's customary for there to be a caravan that takes you from the city that you're in to Jerusalem. This would be the, the, the fastest way. Uh, this would be the most direct way. This would be the, the, the safest way to get to Jerusalem from wherever it is that you're going for a feast exactly like this. Uh, to put this in perspective, this is probably the case of uh, Joseph and Mary. You remember that story in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through uh, 51, when uh, Joseph and Mary they traveled back to Nazareth, and Jesus, when he's 12 years old, uh, they get about a day's journey into it, and then they finally notice that Jesus wasn't among them. You remember that? They're in a caravan, most, uh, most likely. But here we're not 100% sure because Jesus wasn't in that caravan. That is, he doesn't go to the feast publicly. He goes to the feast in private. We're not 100% sure of his whereabouts uh, at this point, but at least we know that his desire for a private arrival into Jerusalem was finally realized. Now in verse 11, uh, the antagonism of the Jews really presents itself. It comes to the fore when it says that the Jews were looking for him at the feast. Uh, The Greek word behind looking um, indicates a a prolonged and uh, systematic uh, searching for Jesus. And not only were they searching with their eyes, they're also searching with their words. Where is he? Uh, In the original in in Greek, this, this phrase is notably derogatory. It's meant to be derogatory, almost like they're saying, yeah, where's that guy at? Not even mentioning his name. Where is this, uh, this guy? Doubtless what they're trying to do is they're trying to control public opinion regarding Jesus. They're trying to control the narrative about who Jesus is and what people should think of him. And evidently this, to some degree, this is working. Uh, look at verse 12. Verse 12 says that there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said no, he's leading the people astray. So just like what you have throughout the entire Gospel of John, you have two outcomes. This is what I love about the Gospel of John. You have two outcomes uh, for people like us who read this book 2,000 years or so later, that there always only ever has been two outcomes regarding what you think of Jesus. This book makes it very clear, this passage makes it very clear, just as the whole book does, either Jesus is a good man, that is, he is the fountain of all that is good, he is the mercy of God incarnate, or he's a liar. And to use uh, C.S. Lewis's categories, you know, he's the liar, a lunatic, or the Lord that he says he is. Well, here in this passage, it's, you know, even dwindled down just to two things. He's either a liar or he is the Lord as he says he is. And to understand how this related to the original audience uh, would make uh, things a lot more intense. It was held in Judaism in that day because of 
how they read and interpret Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5. It was held in Judaism in that day that someone who leads a crowd astray, which, by the way, is the same Greek word that's found here as in the Greek Old Testament in Deuteronomy 13, whoever leads a crowd astray is liable to be put to death. Later on in history, Jesus would be known in the Babylonian Talmud as one who led people astray, and that's why he was executed. So taken to its full meeting, you either bow to him as your Lord, or you approve of his execution. That's the only two options that were given here. And so it's not hard to understand how this kind of extreme polarization makes a lot of sense of verse 13, as we said all the way at the beginning, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly publicly about him. And so the people are divided about him uh, back then in similar ways as we are even divided about him to this day. Uh, But there's a beacon of hope. There's a beacon of light in all this. Uh, It's not 100% easy to see, but the second and third, fourth time you, you think about it, you'll be able to perceive this beacon of hope. You have people who are afraid to talk about Jesus for fear of the Jews, but you know that tells me Uh, Maybe this is just my optimism coming out, but this at least tells me that there's believers among them, right? It at least tells me uh, that the church is found in seed form. In other words, it's better that there be polarization about the things of Christ than for all the world on this side of glory to have complete and unregenerate unanimity about who Jesus is and the things of Christ. In other words, if there, if there were complete unanimity among all, there would be no believers at all. But God will always provide for himself a remnant for his people at the very least. Uh, Jesus says about the church that the gates of hell itself will not prevail against her. There's always going to be a church on earth no matter how small. Um, Jesus uh, is quoted about Jesus in Matthew 12, the bruised reed he will not break. The smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Uh, To use the phrase found in Isaiah 53, the Son of God will see the travail of his soul and he will be satisfied. Many will be accounted righteous because he will bear their iniquities. And so we could praise God for his church in this small way, even in this passage here, can't we? That there is an institution that exists and persists from the Garden of Eden to this very day that proclaims the Lord Jesus as our own in spite of the world, in spite of the flesh, and in spite of the devil himself. And look at how this institution even was formed in the first place. Talk about polarization. You know what the greatest example of polarization in all the world could possibly be? A holy God and sinners. That is the greatest example of polarization ever to be found in the world. There is no thing out there more polarizing than a holy God and a sinful people. And what what has he done about it? He's sent his son to be our mediator. Uh, He's sent his son to be the one who bears our sins. Uh, He's sent his son to dispense his favor upon us. He takes what is ours and gives what is his. He makes us stand upright in his presence as his very sons and daughters. 
he takes this polarization and he does what no one else could ever possibly do because he, in the words of this passage, is a good man. Which, if you think about it, is another description of his deity. He's the only good man who ever existed. So what's to be our role in this? Uh, We've seen that Jesus' private attendance at the feast makes us consider his placement in the world, uh, how people respond to him, and how we can be bold in living for him. So how how is it that we can be bold in living for him? Well, firstly, uh, brothers and sisters, by knowing that Jesus arrived in private here so that he could die in public later, knowing that Jesus arrived in private here so that he can die in public later. This passage takes great pains to tell us over and over and over again to state that Jesus went in private. Verse 1 says that he would not go about in Judea. His brothers said, don't work in secret. Show yourself to the world. He said, no, I'm not going in public. I'm going in private. Verse 10 says that he went up not public or not openly, but private. Verse 11 says that the Jews were looking for him. Uh, they, they, were, they, were, they were asking around. They were muttering about him. People are muttering about him, but he's nowhere to be found. Part of why he isn't going public is because he's not to die at this feast. He's not supposed to die at this feast. If the religious elite found him, <clears throat> they'd take him aside in private and kill him in private. He's to die at another feast, uh, one that requires a public execution for all the world to see. That was the way that the story was supposed to go. And he knows this. He knows all things. And the proclamation of his death is meant to be as public as the death itself. So the way that you can be bold and living for him is to recognize how open and how publicized to the world his death actually was, his, uh, the, the fulfillment of his death actually was, and to know that the proclamation of his death and, and, and really the fullness of his substitutionary work is to be presented likewise. So know that Jesus arrived in private here so that he can die in public later. Secondly, uh, don't be afraid to speak about Jesus for fear of popular religion in our day. Don't be afraid to speak about Jesus for fear of the popular religion of our day. Uh, This is a lesson for everyone, including uh, yours truly. Verse 13 says, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Uh, In this passage, uh, they're afraid of the Jewish religious elites. In our day, we're under the impression that we should be afraid of the non-religious elites. We're under that impression that we should be afraid afraid of the non-religious elites. Brothers and sisters, that's not true. That's not true, and that's for one reason. All exercise of authority in any form always has a religion behind it. Any exercise of authority from determining the tax code to determining when life begins has directly behind it a religion. It has an appeal to an eternal authority. It's just that in our day, the culture is trying everything that it can with all of its power, with all that its might, to say that that eternal authority resides between your ears. That you are the ultimate authority and nothing else. They'll try all sorts of ways of doing this. 
They'll use our language to their advantage. They'll use our sympathy to their advantage. Uh, They'll use our systems to their advantage. The thing that we got to keep in mind, brothers and sisters, is how to understand the word of God on the one hand, and then on the other hand, what it says about the sheer advantage that we have as being children of the king of the ages. So when you stop thinking about many of our hot-button issues as political and start thinking of them them as religious or theological, uh, that'll at least clear some things up here and there. You'll know the solid ground upon which you stand. So don't be afraid to speak about Jesus for fear of the popular religion in our day. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we do thank you.